Hello and welcome to the KBHH podcast, where we are looking at doing things differently in the equine industry. From new technologies to equine behaviour to well-being within equine practice, we've got something for you. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the show. Absolutely delighted to have the almighty Gemma Pearson join us for this episode of the podcast. This is certainly someone that I have been dying to get into the hot seat. She is one person that I think champions one of the most important welfare aspects of equine, and that's all around behaviour. So, Gemma, thank you for being here. I'd love to kick off with what made you think this behavioural niche, this is where I want to head with my kind of equine passport. So, Actually, that goes back quite a long way. I didn't get into vet school until my third attempt. And in that time, I ended up working for an equine vet as a PA and seeing all of these really stressed horses that were needle shy, the ones that wouldn't load and everyone was frustrated at the end of the day and thinking we can do this better. Surely we can do something better. So that's where it really started. And it's just ballooned from there. Seeing that before coming into veterinary must have been pretty powerful because I must say, I'm only speaking from my experience. I can't speak for Naomi and others, but we didn't get much behavioural training, you know, in our undergrad degree at all. It's only when I moved into a welfare charity that I even had my eyes opened to some of it. What are your thoughts on that in terms of how we can maybe support those students a bit more? Well, that is something that we're trying to do a lot better nowadays. Certainly, I was the same. We had very little behavioural training at all. And what we did have was all about physical restraint of horses. There wasn't any real behaviour training in there and certainly not learning theory. But I think now we've moved forward a long way. So obviously I'm employed by the Horse Trust, but based at the University of Edinburgh. And I now teach the students in first, second, fourth and final year. So they get it integrated throughout the course. And I think most of the vet schools now are doing things. I'm also aware that Beaver have some ideas about moving forwards and making sure that anyone that's teaching our undergraduate students has at least an adequate knowledge of how horses learn. You mentioned Beaver there and doing some learning and lots of people will be aware of the Don't Break Your Vet campaign which was going on with Beaver that you were very much involved with. There's some brilliant videos for anyone that hasn't seen them. Looking back on that now with the benefit of hindsight, which as we know is always twenty twenty, What are your sort of reflections on that as a campaign and how well it's worked or otherwise? I've been astounded actually by how much uptake it has had. And you never know with these things, Beaver had not done anything along those lines previously. So whether it would just go out and, you know, people not watch it, but actually I've had so many people come up to me, both vets saying, you know, this horse has always been difficult and dangerous and now it stands still. But also horse owners saying, my vet sent me to to watch these videos. I have done. We've got some things going. Now we need help to move forward. So I think they've got thousands and thousands of views. I think it was a really good way of reaching a massive audience. If if kind of money and time was no object and you could wave a magic wand and kind of build on that, what else would you kind of add or think we could do as a whole profession, be it Beaver or otherwise, that we could build on from this? I could almost split that into two different aspects. So obviously the Don't Break Your Vet was literally in response to the appalling numbers of injuries that vets receive. And I found that in some of my own MSC work, 81% of vets have sustained at least one injury in the last five years. 
as a consequence of the horse's behaviour, you know, not due to anything else. That just has to be integrated from day one in vet school. This is how we deal with anxious horses. But then the wider part of that is, and we need to recognise it as its own speciality. You can become an accredited behaviourist now. There is a European college, but, you know, there's almost a danger. And so many of them are related to pain. I think what we don't want to do is just leave it to kind of non-vets, and there are some great non-vet behaviourists, but have no ownership of this, have no involvement in it until later down the line. I think one of the things that I often reflect on, Gemma, as well, is that how often the behaviour of the horse creates stress and sometimes confrontation for the owner. That feeling when you're a young vet in particular that a naughty horse that you can't deal with often leaves that kind of bad impression for the owner as well you know that thing of well your boss never has this problem or whatever and I was just wondering what your advice was to vets who go where quite clearly the owner is really scared of that horse as well and in terms of just situation management I think with those as well because as you get older and you get more experienced you learn how to deal with those but I think at the beginning of your career it can be really intimidating to deal with that yeah so I'm going to start I'm going to tell you a little story and this is one of the nicest emails I ever received it was a a vet student that had left and gone into a new job and on her first day in her new job she was sent out to vaccinate this horse and they said we're so sorry we're having to send you out the client is going to be difficult she only accepts the practice partner the horse is very needle shy but he's been called to an emergency the vaccine lapses today you know you just need to go do it So she turned up on the yard and the client was furious that it wasn't the partner and said, you'll never manage this. You know, it's only through his size and strength that he manages it. You're going to have one shot at this horse and, you know, I don't see it's going to happen. And she said, "Okay." she says, well, we've actually been taught a bit about behaviour in vet school. So why don't I do some of the things we've done and we'll see how we get on? So she used learning theory. She used a bit of behaviour modification. And this pony stood on a loose lead rope and had its vaccine. And then she drove back to the practice and the practice manager said, can you please come into the office for a second? And she thought, oh, no, what's happened now? But they actually said, we've had Mrs. X on the phone. And she rang up as soon as you left to say she has never been as impressed with a young vet in her life. And you're welcome back to do anything with any of our horses. So, yeah, it's really difficult as a new grad. And I'm not saying everyone should have perfect behaviour skills with every horse. That's unrealistic. But the more we can get these things into play, the happier owners are. I think one thing that can be useful to start off with is when you first go in and you can see that owner is anxious, just chatting to them. And if you can, give the horse a scratch. And if you can just spend a bit of time either slowly stroking or scratching the horse so that its lips starting to twitch and it's pushing into you a little bit, you can ask the owner about like what the children are doing at Pony Club or how they've got on at the last dressage test, you know, something that's going to keep them chatting for a little while. And you tend to find once they start to talk about something else, they relax. You're giving a horse a scratch so the horse relaxes and then the owner recognises that the horse is calmer and it's just really settled that situation down. I'm like fist pumping in the air hearing (laughs) that email. That is just what a legacy you're leaving and your team, Gemma, in the next generation, having that capability. I mean, you know, confidence in that first year and building that is so important. And that would have been such a stepping stone and such a milestone for that vet. So if we build then on the scenarios that you've just shared there, let's talk about some of the the myth busting that's still kind of going on within the behavioural world of equine. And you raised a really good point, Gemma, around the the whole box rest isolation uh, and and keeping that that horse happy. I don't know if you want to expand on, on that scenario for us. 
Yeah, so I think we need to remember that horses are horses. They have innate physiological needs. We call them the three Fs of friends, forage and freedom. And if we remove those, it drives a physiological stress response. And if you've got that stress response, you become more dangerous. You're more likely to react to things in the environment that you wouldn't otherwise. So I've actually got one of my MSc students um, who's also a vet. She's fabulous. She's going to look into box rest. So look forward to you know some surveys hitting the road soon. But I know of so many people, mainly owners, that are injured through dealing with horses on box rest. Mm -hmm. And I think it very depends on the scenario you're in. So if you are in Newmarket on a racing yard and most things don't get turned out and they're handled by professionals, they do box rest, all the other horses are in, then they go on the walker, then, you know, they can control the environment. But actually, when you go into a normal livery yard, you put these horses on box rest, it causes a massive stress response, which the owners find incredibly stressful. But you also got what we call post-inhibitory rebound. So if this horse hasn't been able to exercise freely, the first time they get an opportunity, which may be when you're leading them out doing in-hand walking, they explode. And someone sent me a picture just two days ago about a horse that they were walking it around the arena because it was pretty hot for being on box rest and jumped and came down and destroyed the fencing. I know someone else that was 16 years old and had a really nice Appaloosa, really quiet, sensible riding club type, but was doing in-hand walking post-tendon injury and some other horses cantered across a field and he just leapt in the air and bucked and he wasn't aware where she was. You know, there was no mm. malice in it. But he kicked her in the on the cheek and she now has a metal plate in her cheek. The other thing is we've had a few vets injured and I see this around the UK of horses that come into new yards. They have to go in an isolation field with no other horses until they've had these blood samples. And an animal that maybe was a little bit nervous but was fine for its first blood sample now injures someone when they try and take the second one because it's in an environment that it can't cope with. So... Yeah, we really need to start thinking about horses being horses and think, what can we do to make these scenarios better for them? And how can we minimise them? It's amazing when you then start talking to people about the after effects of box rest, because actually the first time people put them out in the paddock and they have that rebound, they go completely mental, even if they haven't gone mental in hands and injured somebody, which obviously is a risk. They're definitely at risk of undoing all of the good effects of their box rest by just that behavioural response that they have to freedom, which is completely normal when you think about it. Yeah, and I, I see quite a few owners now as well, whereby there's been a breakdown in the relationship between them and the horse, mm -hmm. or the horse has changed personality after being on box rest. You know, they're more anxious, or you definitely see that, that difference in the, their interactions with people. So I think there's some long-term consequences that, yeah, even if the tendon has healed or the wound has healed, in how we're managing these cases. What can we as veterinary professionals be advising our owners or perhaps supporting in maybe changing, tweaking some of that management to, to help with those three Fs? I guess one, environmental enrichment is something which is, is becoming much more popular in the equine behaviour world now and just trying to give them something to keep their brain engaged. Another one is just really thinking about managing the environment. So if they have to be on box rest, can you tie another horse up next to them so they can mutually groom it? We know when they do that, it activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So it's helping, you know, this is a physiological need for them. Can we alter the stable so they can access other horses or even can we build a pen outside so they, they can just wander in and out and slowly make that pen bigger? 
if it's big enough and if they're you know they're of the right temperament can another horse be in with them rather than being on their own and then finally so you mentioned myth busting earlier i'm going to bust another myth and that's that acp is an anxiolytic and that is something that we were all taught when we we're at vet school, you know, ACP reduced anxiety. But we know that it's a dopamine antagonist. And there's actually a position statement out now from a group of small animal behaviorists in Europe to say that ACP is contraindicated where anxiety mm-hmm. is a case. So whilst I'm not saying we should never use ACP, I think we need to recognize that it doesn't take away that anxiety. It doesn't change how the animal feels. If anything, by blocking dopamine, it may reduce their ability for happiness and positive interactions. So if I do use ACP, I do use it with a drug which targets anxiety as well. And I think we need to start thinking about using these on box rest more, as well as really, really thinking, how long do I have to have this awesome box rest for? How how restricted does it have to be? It's a really interesting debate, that, isn't it? Because I, having had some injuries myself, when you go to talk to a human physiotherapist, the last thing they want you doing is nothing. And actually, even with ligament and tendon injuries, they have you exercising pretty much from day one. So I think it does beg the question of, is it the right thing we should be doing from a rehab perspective anyway, tied in with the kind of environmental and behavioural aspects of that. And one thing you just mentioned, Gemma, which I wanted to pick up was the word happy. And I was wondering how we define a happy horse or how you would help people to understand what that means, particularly in the context of horses that maybe don't go out as much, you know, so I'm talking high level competition horses, riding school horses. Can you just expand on that a little bit for us? Yeah, so again, there's probably a couple of different things within that question. Um, One is how do we measure happiness? Now, obviously, really the only way you could measure it would be to ask them, which we can't. But even then, you know, you can ask people and it's not 100% foolproof because people can lie. So really, we're never going to be able to measure something like that perfectly. But we shouldn't let perfect be the enemy of good. And we do have some good tools now whereby we can start to have some idea about what emotions animals may be feeling. They're definitely more blunt. They're definitely more, is it positive or negative? What's the level of arousal? But we do have some ideas now about how they're feeling. So we need to start to use these to measure them. The other one is to think about with these long-term aspects, such as horses that are on box rest long-term, I think it can be much harder to actually look at, at those and determine whether they're happy or not because they often look well. But actually, on a physiological basis, a lot of these animals still have a more active stress response than they would do otherwise. And there was a really interesting study at UFO, which was looking at mice. So I apologise if I'm digressing a little bit here, but it's one of those things that just makes you think. And they will look at mice which are in kind of standard barren cages or ones with lots of enrichment, lots of places to hide and investigate. And one of the behaviours they were looking at was lying awake. And I think they call it active but awake behaviours in mice. Now, that is not normal for mice. Mice run around, they scurry around, they investigate and then they sleep. And then they scurry around, investigate and then they sleep. And there's very short periods of times where they will lay there with their eyes open but not doing anything. And of course, the ones in the barren cages, they did find that they were spending prolonged periods of times doing this. Now, For all intents and purposes, they looked happy. They weren't grimacing. They didn't look upset. But what they showed was that if you give them antidepressants, they don't offer that behaviour anymore. They scurry around and perform all of these normal mice behaviours. 
So I think just because a horse stands there and eats its hair net and kind of, you know, may even have its ears pricked, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're providing the best life for them possible. And as we said, friends, forage and freedom, in terms of freedom, horses normally, you know, will take a couple of bites and a step, a couple of bites and a step. They're constantly moving. And don't get me wrong, you know, I live in Scotland in the middle of winter when it's minus 16 and there's four foot of snow, bringing horses in overnight to eat and stay dry is perfectly sensible. I'm not saying never use stabling, but just making sure that they do have that opportunity to go out and, and do what they need to do. We can also look at things like choice and preference testing. And we have shown that horses will work quite hard in terms of how many times they'll push a button and other things to be able to access a field, even when they've got adequate feed and, you know, the weather is nicer in the stable. I also, I've seen so many older horses, even, you know, slim thoroughbreds, that they don't suffer from arthritis and stiffness as much. If they're out full time and they keep moving, they seem to do so much better. Gemma, we've, we've spoken a little bit about myth busting there. I, I really love that exploration on what happy is. I'd like to come back a little bit maybe to myth busting or, or more to educate our, our listeners and maybe give our listeners some tips on how to talk to owners around the word dominance, naughty, my horse is this, my horse is that. And I'd love you to expand on that. Yeah, so, you know, we all know now horses don't see us as other um, animals to be dominant over We also, dominance even between horses is really complex and it's normally more about a bilateral relationship over a specific resource. And actually in groups, you might go, well, that horse is dominant over that one, but actually for a different resource, a different one is dominant over the one you thought was was top of the pack. So in terms of how horse interacts with humans, we know that dominance isn't an aspect there. And we also know that horses are not naughty. You know, you get the behaviour you reinforce, not the one you want. So my classic example of a naughty pony would be the pony that when it's ridden by a small child, puts its head down and eats grass. And if it's ridden by a a small adult, it doesn't. But that just comes back to whatever behaviour is reinforced because the small child can't stop the pony putting its head down. And these ponies are off on restricted grazing anyway. So when it does and gets lush grass... We're just reinforcing, you know, the the undesired behaviour. So I think trying to help owners and also making owners almost taking a little bit of responsibility away from them because people are really embarrassed if the horse isn't behaving well. And, you know, at the same time, I think they need more responsibility to train them. But actually saying to owners, well, actually, I don't think he's being naughty. What else might be motivating this behaviour? Could it be fear? It's often fear in these cases. Could it be frustration? You know, could it be something else that's going on? And then once you start to understand what's motivating and what reinforces the behaviour, rather than going, how do I stop this horse doing this? He's being naughty. You go, well, how do I train the horse to, for example, stand still? So the classic example of the needle shy horse, everyone's obsessed with trying to stop them from rearing. But actually, rather than trying to do that, which physically we can't do very effectively, if you think, how do I train him to stand still? Then you've got the horse to want to not rear because it wants to stand still. Uh, It's more a salient thing for it. And then we've got happier horses and happier owners. And once I get them to make that mind shift a little bit, we start making some good progress. 
And what about the the pony that pops its head down with a little child? Because I think that is such a difficult one for kids especially to deal with. And there'll be lots of people listening to this who probably got kids and ponies and they can't, you know, if they're laminitic or, you know, let's face it, obesity is a massive problem if they haven't got a lot of access to grazing. What's your advice for those ones, Gem? Because I think that's a really tricky and for the children it can be really frustrating when you're a kid, can't it? Yeah, and that's where I think just using like grass reins, just okay. because it physically stops them getting to the grass. And then over time, they start, now don't get me wrong, if you take the grass reins off, the phone <laughs> is going to associate what behaviours it can form when they're on versus off. But actually, that's one of those scenarios whereby it would be really hard. And you could, you know, you could click train these ponies to not put their heads down. But actually, you'd have to have a really salient food source available on quite a frequent basis. Mm. Because even if you say, well, we're going to go, you know, 10 minutes between giving you a treat, that pony can get its head down and get a couple of mouthfuls of lush grass. It's so salient. It's just so rewarding, isn't it? So, yeah, I think grass range or something like that is is great. As we're kind of like building on all these incredible kind of tips and, 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 and science and we're discussing behaviour here, Naomi and I were chatting yesterday and we're like, that's well, great, isn't it? In small animal, you've got like cat friendly clinics and now they're bringing in dog friendly clinics. Do you think there's a a market or something that we could actually be pushing to have, you know, equine friendly clinics? Because it does help to promote both from the public facing point of view, but also uphold kind of our standards and our policies and our learning of, of what is good for welfare. Yeah, definitely. And I actually think that's already happening, albeit there maybe isn't a, a brand name or, or something to go with that. But a lot of people now keep horses as pets, you know, even up to a moderate level of competition. Not many people are actually keeping them to make a living from the horse. It's a hobby and they want that good relationship with their horse. And as time's gone on, it's just people don't tolerate seeing their animal being hit or shouted at by a vet, you know, and it's not nice for anyone. It's not nice for the vet, for the horse, for the owner. So actually, the more vets are starting to integrate this they are the ones that the owners want to come back to their horses, you know, and I've seen owners that will say, well, I use that vet in the practice, even though they're not the experienced vet and they maybe haven't done as many lameness workups, but they're nice to my horse. So from a vet point of view, I think it's a great way, you know, happy clients are more likely to pay. They're more likely to, you know, look after the vets well. So the more we build this positive relationship with them, I I think it's a, a mutually beneficial situation one of the other things that we wanted to ask you about Jen was this thorny issue that we encounter quite often where the quality of somebody's riding or potentially the size of owner versus horse might be a little bit disparate or mismatched and I'm sure a lot of vets would relate to times when they thought yeah, you're the problem there, which it can be really difficult. And I know there's been a lot of work at the animal. Well, you know, what was the Animal Health Trust about? Saddle fit and the way people sit and those relations to behaviour and to, and to lameness as well. What's your take on that and advice to vets in dealing with those? Uh, what can be very tricky situations, maybe? So it, it depends what the issue is. I would often see years ago, it was these big warm bloods that were very fashionable and people that had a bit more money than, you know, maybe sense would would buy them because they wanted to do well at dressage. Now I'm starting to see a few more thoroughbreds with the ROR because that's fashionable. So actually kind of explaining to them about negative reinforcement or pressure release, as we would often call it, 
and saying, okay, well, you know, your horse, we're having this issue ridden. Let's work through some of it. So just teaching the horse to stop and back up off of really light rain pressure, but then pointing out to them, well, actually, that time you used your rain for balance, you didn't want the horse to stop, but another time you used the same amount of pressure to ask the horse to stop. And sometimes when you kind of go and you go, oh, do you see that? What happened? And they go, oh, yeah, I use my rein for balance again. Now, some of these owners actually improve. They it get their riding better to be able to ride these horses. But I think sometimes if you're kind of doing it in that direction, they can come to that conclusion themselves, you know, and they may say, what do you think? And, and they now kind of have the conversation that it's not that you're a bad rider. It's just that this horse has been bred to be finely tuned a little bit like I can't drive a Formula One car. You know, I can drive normal cars. I can even drive fast cars. I like driving fast cars. But once you start going up into something that's designed for someone that just does this for a living and, you know, and again, saying to them, you're not a professional rider because you're not riding for 10 hours a day. And actually that is what these people do to be able to give the cues so consistently and clearly to these high sensitive horses. They're so finely tuned we need to do that. So making the owner feel that it's not their fault or their bad riding. It's just that actually this combination isn't working. That's such good advice. Such good advice. And actually, I love that analogy of the Formula One car. When you talk about highly tuned athletes, it's very analogous, that, isn't it? Yeah, I was that owner seven years ago with that racehorse. It's amazing when you learn what you really should be doing versus what you think you can. But that's great. The great thing about horses as well is they are the most wonderful mirrors, aren't they? They are our most wonderful teachers if you are willing to listen to what, what they are saying and doing around us. And on that note, if we talk about you know excessive restraint or we think about restraining um, and how we use and maybe ride these animals, I want to kind of learn a little bit more about bits and bridles as well. There's so much good use that could be done these and in the wrong hands with the, with the wrong stuff it can also be pretty tragic as well when we think about what these things are doing. But I'd love to hear your thoughts there on perhaps what we can be learning and understanding more uh, as a vet profession and again how we can be supporting our owners. Yeah so I think we actually need to move away from restraining horses and towards training them to stand still for procedures. Uh, I'll initially just talk about the kind of vet side of it but I think you know horses are flight animals so as soon as we restrain them, that's always going to cause a mild fear response, even in really happy horses, calm horses. So the more restraint you have, the more fearful that animal is. And some of these animals will freeze. So they'll go into a kind of reactive coping mechanism. So, you know, you hold a leg up, you put the twitch on and they're absolutely stock still. But actually their fear response is massive. And then all of a sudden they explode out of it. Whereas trying to get the horse calm is beneficial. So I completed my PhD, finally. And one of my thesis chapters, which I'm hoping to publish fairly soon, was actually using classical counter conditioning for nerve blocking. So in this, what we did was it was just during the preparation phase. And either the horses were held as normal, and that may or may not include feed while the limb was being prepped, or we would classically counter condition. So this is kind of Pavlov's dog, so making associations. Um, someone approaching the limb with the arrival of food. So one of our students might go in and palpate the limb, the person holding them starts trickle feeding them. They step away from the limb, the feeding stops. They go in to clip, the feeding starts, they stop clipping, the feeding stops. They go in to start scrubbing, feeding starts, 
and they would step away at least three times during scrubbing for, for a block. And very quickly, you get these animals just looking. As soon as someone comes near their lane, they think, oh, wow, here comes the food, rather than thinking, oh, no, they're going to stick a needle in there. And the most interesting aspect of that was when you looked at horses that had multiple blocks, and in the control group, they only went up to four blocks. In the treatment group, we went up to eight. But when you looked at how they were scored over time, and these were scored by people that were completely blinded. So when they had the nerve block, that was the only time we filmed. Well, that wasn't the only time. That was the only video footage they saw. And it was entirely up to the vet doing the nerve block. So some did want to put a twitch on or hold a leg up. Some just continued feeding them. But the people that were blinded were able to separate these groups out and actually saw that the more nerve blocks these horses had, the calmer they were getting in the treatment group, even though... They may have had a twitch on, they may have had a leg up, you know, they, they couldn't see which group they were in because we weren't doing the process at that time. So, you know, I think we've done things the way we've done them because we've always done them. And now we need to start to um, to look differently. And then, you know, talk about bits and bridles and everything else. The more force you use, the, the stronger the bit, potentially the more pain you're inflicting. Now, obviously, you have to having you've got to have control of the horse if it's not trained to stand still then we have to have it standing still to do things with us i'm never going to say that these horses should be trotting around you know on the end of a lead rope like some of the kind of natural horsemanship things were saying years ago but actually the more we use the more it potentially induces pain and even in horses that i see for things like bolting they go for stronger and stronger and stronger bits but a lot of these horses are bolting because of the pain from the bit because they're confused and if we go back to a, a snaffle and retrain that stop and that backup response using pressure release, negative reinforcement, they don't bolt anymore. 100%. I think, like you say, we've got we've got a long way to go when we think about restraint. Behaviour is like dentistry was 10 years ago. And I think the way you're discussing now and showcasing this science very much, very much proves that. Naomi, I know obviously you're in the racing world, so I think the next question needs to come from you when we talk <laughs> about the other bits um, bobs that we occasionally use potentially to the detriment to the horse one of the other things that Evs and I were talking about was the use of the whip and one of the things I find interesting is looking at different people's whips because obviously the pro crush that you use in racing is very different to you know whips that other people would use in other disciplines for example and the way that they're used by people who are of different skill a bit like spurs I think as well would be similar that the skill of the user is is one of the kind of big things how much do we know about the impact of the whip on stress fear fight or flight how much science I know there's a bit out there but could you just talk a little bit about the science that we know about that and what the differences are across different disciplines and and I guess where we think the future will will go with that really Gemma yeah so I think we need to think about how the whip is used so I use a whip particularly for dressage because it gives you that reach you know if you want the horse to yield its hind quarters when you're first starting to teach something like Travers that is so much more useful to be able to touch the horse in the hind quarter if it knows that as a response as opposed to trying to do more kind of with your leg pressure and there's only so many places on the horse's side you can use your leg so actually using the whip on different parts of the horse's body can be really useful. I also use a whip for horses that don't go forwards from leg pressure because the more the rider grips and kicks with their legs, often the more the horse gets irritated by that. 
So you can use it as a novel cue. Now, the key difference here is how you use it. So if I just flip from negative to positive reinforcement for a second. When we undertake clicker training with horses, the first ever time we give the horse the kind of mouthful of food after the click, they're not expecting it. And they get a massive spike of dopamine in their brain. Same thing happens to us when we're gambling, uh, which is why it's so addictive. Once the horse knows this, when you press that clicker and that horse hears that sound, that's when it gets the dopamine spike. It's rewarding. Dopamine is all about motivation. So horses continue to repeat this behavior. Now, if you just hit a horse with a whip, that actually causes a massive depletion in dopamine. And it's really random and it's not predictable and it's not controllable. So predictability and controllability are really important for stressing horses. So let's say instead I've got my horse that doesn't go forward. I get the rider to take their legs away from the horse's side. I get them to tap with the whip really, really lightly. You know, don't forget that even horses that are numb to the leg and, you know, have spur marks on the side, a fly lands on them and they twitch their skin. So this horse's sensory nervous system is not broken. We've just not trained things well. So I'll get them to tap them really lightly, but really irritatingly with no rein contact, legs away. And as soon as that horse goes to take a step forward, we stop tapping. Now, at that point, we know that the horse gets a dopamine spike. So you repeat that. And every time the tapping stops, the horse gets a tiny spike of dopamine. But after a few repetitions, when the rider then goes to use their legs, I then say, OK, use your leg lightly. And if they don't go forward, you tap with the whip. They go to use their leg. They get a dopamine spike at that point because they walk forward and the rider's leg pressure is released. So they did this originally with very mild electric shocks in rats and things, and they showed that if they think they can avoid the pressure, they get a little dopamine spike. So this is kind of why you try and why you're motivated in learning. And it also means that we think that learning is enjoyable for the horse. So I'm not against using the whip. I think where it's challenging in racing is if you just use it once, that's really random to the horse. It's not predictable. It's not controllable. So there's going to be no dopamine there. You know, they can't avoid it. I think you could potentially train horses that you go through a sequence and then, you know, you build and, and they're struck with the whip after that. Having said that, most of these horses are already trying rather hard. If a horse really doesn't want to try and race in, I think we need to question whether it should be in racing or not. There are some studies. It's really hard to, to look at stress and fear because these horses, you know, their stress response exercises stress. So when they're racing flat out, you know, you're not going to see differences. And also, you know, if they're already racing as fast as they can, how else are they going to react to the whip? We're not going to see the same stress responses you might do if they're stood still. So I actually think it is an unpleasant stimulus for the horse, even the padded ones. But just as importantly, I think from a social license point of view, it looks really bad to the public that we are having to whip these horses to try and, and make them win. And, you know, we say they're encouraging them, but I think, well, normally encouragement is kind of, I'd class it as gentle encouragement, possibly for something positive. You know, you might encourage your toddler to get into the car and sit still by offering them a bar of chocolate. You know, that's very different to, you know, you might kind of put a bit of pressure on, but you're not going to say, well, I'm going to physically hit you. If you don't get in the car, I hope not anyway. So I, I think it just looks really bad. And that's not so, you know, jockeys have incredibly short stirrups that a whip on the shoulder couldn't be used to stop a horse drifting that, you know, I'm I'm not completely 
anti-whip under any circumstances at all. But I think we need to consider how a member of the public is perceiving our sport. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. There's a lot of sense in all of that. And I think it's really interesting to talk about all whips are not used the same way by the same people. And, you know, I think we see a lot of bad usage across a lot of disciplines, including racing and amateur sport as well. You know, I think there's a lot of people out there who don't get the response they want from their horse. So they just reach for stronger stimuli, which actually does beg the question of, you know, particularly most people it's meant to be a leisure activity that is enjoyable at the end of the day for you and for your horse and where's the line and I think it's really hard that isn't it yeah definitely well look Gemma I think we could talk to you for hours I feel like I've had a big dopamine release in my CBD <laughs> that I've just had from you now and to think about all the things I want to go and keep you know go and investigate more on but for Gemma for someone here who's been who's had their interest really piqued by this where else can we go and find out more about your work, about other people that you, you know, you respect and recommend? Um, because I think it's it's a it's a box that we need to all open as veterinary professionals and rummage in and, and get some tools out for ourselves for our everyday practice. Yeah. So in terms of vets wanting to know a little bit more about behaviour just in general practice, Beaver have some good things on their website. I've done some webinars with them previously and we run CPD courses through them, which are really practical really hands-on how do I deal with difficult horses if people want to take it further than that then the Animal Behaviour and Training Council is the regulatory body for behaviourists or even you know if you've got a case that you think may benefit from a, an accredited behaviourist that is the place to go and search for an equine practitioner and at the University of Edinburgh we are starting up an online course for equine vets which will hopefully watch this space lead to a certificate in advanced veterinary practice in equine behavioural medicine. So, yeah, it's exciting. Things are moving forwards. Well, thank you so much, Gemma, for your time. That was absolutely fantastic. You're very welcome. What an amazing show. Many thanks to today's guests. If you want more information, have a look at the show notes or drop us a line at kbhhuk at msd.com.